my dad, I've got a very close relationship with my dad. He was incredible and all band members loved him because when we would go away, he would do things like sit outside the boys' bedrooms at like midnight, one o'clock, just calmly reading his newspaper, waiting for all the like crazy teenage nonsense to die down. And he would never, he wouldn't be unpleasant to people. He wouldn't try and force people to go to bed. You know, he just calmly and quietly sat there. And he did the same for me in the, all the parties that I, because we, I feel like we partied every Saturday night. I'm sure that's not true, but there was a lot of parties. And he would, he would turn up at midnight to pick me and friends up. And we would inevitably have been drinking because we were teenagers. I mean, and he was a Methodist. He didn't drink. So quite how he kind of tolerated it, I don't know. He would just sit in the car waiting for us to come out of whoever's house, just quietly reading his Guardian newspaper, listening to Radio 4, you know, and just drove us around. And so it was that constant, calm, patient and tolerant attitude from the adults around us that was just really stabilising for all of us who were kind of exploring our adolescence in quite a safe way. You're listening to Sharing Tales, the podcast which embraces and celebrates the rollercoaster of childhood with me, Rebecca Clark. During this series, with a new focus on our childhood experiences, we'll be hearing from a variety of storytellers as each week my special guest joins me to generously share some of their personal stories. The big and small things, sometimes the seemingly innocuous or the unexpected. Here we embrace and acknowledge the rollercoaster of childhood connecting us all through our stories and giving our inner child a chance to be heard. Childhood is the great unifier. We've all had one. None are quite the same. But importantly, we live to tell the tale. Hello. In today's episode of Sharing Tales, I'm joined by the very lovely Susie Davis. Susie is a family psychologist And I first met her back in autumn 2019 when she was one of the guest speakers at an event hosted by Dr. Emma Svanberg and The Village. Some of you might know or be part of Emma's hugely popular and engaged Facebook community of the same name. But at that time, Emma was also hosting in-person events in North London, where we all live. Back then, Susie was running The Family Space, where she worked with and supported families, drawing on her training in human development, psychology and family therapy. She's now the founder of Family Flow, which is a coming soon app giving parents insights and tools to support their parenting journey. There are lots of synergies between Family and Flow and Happy Marlow, and it's been wonderful exploring the different ways we can support each other as founders of businesses with a shared vision and indeed a shared audience. We've also enjoyed finding out we have lots of random things in common, not least both having a parent from a very remote little known part of the Lake District. With four children spanning ages two to 17, Susie knows about young families, both personally and professionally. Bereaved as a child, divorced, remarried, and a stepmother and mother, she also knows about family struggles. Susie's passionate about family life and believes we must each learn to put ourselves first in order to give our best to others. In this conversation, we traverse a childhood spent in the Wirral, where Susie and her family were heavily involved in the Wirral School's concert band. We also talk about childhood bereavement and how Susie and her family coped with the loss of her sister Judith when all three siblings were still quite young. 
It's clear how so many of her early experiences have informed who Susie is today. A leader, an active member of her community, and a real advocate for every type of family. She's on a mission to ensure that parents and teachers get the support they need to best nurture and develop the next generation. I hope you enjoy listening. Well, hello, Susie. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to talk to you. I just wanted to say that I suppose the first thing is that the concept of this podcast is really exciting to me because I too am completely fascinated by people's stories and what makes them be, you know, who they are and where they come from and the experiences they've had. So I think it's a, you know, as a concept, it's brilliant. Well, thank you. And thank you for saying yes for coming on. Like you said, I am fascinated by people's stories. I truly believe everybody's got stories to tell. And finding guests for this podcast has been really organic because I'll often meet someone through work or in a personal setting and just through their conversation. I want to hear more about this. And that's kind of what happened when you and I met a few weeks ago for lunch. So I'm really pleased. Uh, that you, you've come on. Now, I know in your work as a family coach and a family psychologist, you know, you're all about, I guess, getting into the nitty gritty of family dynamics and, and what real life looks like for families. And I've just, well, all of us have just come off the back of the Easter holidays and I'm at home with my little three-year-old. And I have to say, it's pretty glad this week um, for normal childcare services to resume. I know you've got four kids at home. How do you find these holidays? Crikey, that's a big question and one that will resonate with so many parents. I think we have to be honest. I think all of us need to be a bit more honest and a bit more real about what family life is really like. Mm. I think very few of us kind of glide through it in the way that we might have imagined when we were younger. Yeah, so we've got four kids at home from 17 down to two. So we're meeting all needs at all different times (laughs) and it's intense. And I totally relate that it's Mm. great to get them back into their normal sort of childcare routine and just to get some headspace. And as a mother, you know, lots of mums will relate to this, but it's it's not just about mums. It's, you know, there's many dads that will relate to this as well. That, yeah. you know, we need our headspace and we're so busy meeting other people's needs all the time that, um, yes, it's a welcome return to a little bit of normality for a while, you know, just a bit of headspace yeah. to be able to have nice conversations like this. <laughs> Absolutely. It's that thing, isn't it, around giving ourselves permission to put ourselves first almost. And I think Mm -hmm. as parents or caregivers, that often isn't the thing that comes to mind. We're so busy juggling everything else. But I think I I think I read on your LinkedIn perhaps earlier today when I was just doing some more research that you're you're the, the mindset that we need to take care of ourselves first so we can bring our best to our families. Absolutely. And, you know, you hear people saying that and we kind of get it like as theoretically, but what that actually looks mm. like is very different and how, how easy that is to do. That's the tricky piece here is how do we prioritise ourselves? Because, you know, I'm sure most people have heard that the idea is if you can't pour from an empty cup and, you know, mm. you have to put on your own oxygen mask first. And so, yeah, theoretically, we can all kind of connect with those concepts but um, actually what does that look like and a lot of it is around kind of being clear about our boundaries and um, being able to enforce them if you like that's quite a harsh word 
in a mm. loving and compassionate way towards the people around us, but also towards ourselves. You know, mm. that's one of the great pieces of work, I think, that, that needs to be done as parents is how do we meet our own needs alongside the needs of everyone else around us it's a massive conversation and i think it probably deserves a podcast episode all of its own Uh, but today of course we're here to talk about growing up and your childhood and it was really nice when we first met we realized we had quite a lot of things in common or synergies and I was delighted to find out that you grew up in Merseyside uh, Mm -hmm. as I studied there and absolutely love Liverpool. And so we're going to kick off with your first story for today, which is the good story. And Wirral School's concert band. Tell me more. It always makes me laugh because if, if you see, well, I can't remember the name of the movie. Is it American Pie? Which talks at that one time at band camp, <laughs> and, um, yeah. and that that was basically my life from the age of twelve until I left to go to university at eighteen. I mean, it was absolutely a foundational experience in my life, as are you know most things that children do as teenagers as a kind of backdrop to this you know coming at it from a psychology point of view when we're teenagers our our brains are rewiring um you may or may not know that listeners may or may not know that and it's that idea of uh, using it or losing it so our brain is undergoing a massive kind of rewiring and pruning getting rid of stuff that we don't need anymore and and that's the the period in our, our brain development where what we do really really matters and as luck would have, I mean, of course, I knew none of this as a teenager, and I'm sure my Mm. parents had no clue, but as luck would have it, I kind of fell on my feet a little bit by um, ending up in World School's concert band. Just having an amazing kind of grounding opportunity through my teenage years, and it was also a huge opportunity for growth, and not to mention the friendships that came out of it. The backstory to, to it is kind of slightly tragic, and I'll come to that when we talk about my bad story but so basically what happened was that um I had two older sisters who were both clarinetists and Mm -hmm. they had got to high grades grade seven or grade eight they were sort of six seven years older than me they were played in World School's concert band. And I used to, as this young child, go and watch them performing. And I was just like completely in awe. And I was like, oh my God, I want to do that when I'm older. I mean, I must've been quite young. I must've been sort of seven, eight, maybe when they mm. were they were in it. And it just looked brilliant. The, the, the sad twist of it is, is that one of the sisters, the younger of the two, she got cancer and I'll talk about that later. But her cancer developed into her lungs and she had half of each of her lungs removed. So she could no longer play clarinet. So she moved on to percussion. And I just used to watch her thinking, oh my God, that looks so fun. I really, really want to do that. Anyway, cut to when I was 12, I got in on percussion. It was just being part, I mean, there must've been about, I don't know, 60, 70 of us possibly in the band. It was pretty big and you had to be at quite a high standard and it, people came from schools all over the Wirral. And, mm. you know, we just had this experience of we worked hard, we played hard, but it was this amazing kind of community and team work. It was the highlight of my week, every week, every Saturday morning mm. for my whole, all my teenage years. Off I went to um, 
band and um you know we just put and the the joy of creating music together and playing lots of yeah. really po- popular stuff was i mean it was incredible anyway i'll come up for air uh-huh. and were there any particular kind of leaders or was the, the band conductor what were the adults in this community like and what impact did they have on you all that's a really good question so my mum and dad were actually really involved in it. Um, so, well, the main, the conductor was a chap called David Strawn, who um, he had a good sense of, like, I mean, you have to have a sense of humour if you're working with teenagers. Um, yeah. And he, he had this great balance of having a sense of humour, but also just being really stable and constant. Some of the parents of, you know, band members were heavily involved in, in the Parents Association and they, and every year we would go away on a holiday so and every other year it would be into Europe and we would go away and perform in different European venues and then in the in-between years we would go somewhere in the UK and we did recordings and and it was the it was the adults around us who made it all happen and my dad like I, I've, I've got a very close relationship with my dad. He was incredible and all band members loved him because he would, we, mm. when we would go away, he would do things like sit outside the boys' bedrooms at like midnight, one o'clock, just calmly reading his newspaper, waiting for all the like crazy teenage nonsense to die down. And he would never, he wouldn't inf- be unpleasant to people he wouldn't try and force people to go to bed you know he just Mm -hmm. calmly and quietly sat there and he did the same for me in the all the parties that I because we I feel like we partied every Saturday night I'm sure that's not true but there was a (laughs) lot of parties and he would he would turn up at midnight to pick me and friends up and we'd inevitably have been drinking because we were teenagers I mean and he was a Methodist he didn't drink so quite how he kind of tolerated it I don't know Mm. and um, he would just sit in the car waiting for us to come out of whoever's house just quietly reading his Guardian newspaper listening to Radio 4 and, um, you know, and just drove us around. And so it was that constant, calm, patient and tolerant attitude from the adults around us that was just Mm. really stabilising for all of us who were kind of exploring our adolescence in quite a safe way. Yeah. It sounds quite special in that not only you had the community and being around peers and having a fun time with the band but I didn't realize that your parents have been so involved too so it's you know kind of really feeding into a crossover or a blurring of the lines if you like of that time when teenagers more often than not want to spend lots of time with their friends but your family Mm. it sounds like they were front and center involved in that as well do you think that was a conscious decision on your parents part to you just find ways to connect with you all and and be involved in your growing up? It's it's a great question. I've not kind of framed it like that at all. I mean, of course, as a teenager, I I certainly found my mum quite annoying, um, her presence there, because she wasn't quite the sort of same calm, accepting, you know. Right. I'll tell you one slightly funny story but I remember we were away on one of our trips and we were up to some kind of madness in our bedroom and there was a body shop hairspray called Stiffy it's an unfortunate right. name and um and my mum kind of came into the room in a very cross way to see what was going on and, and we were all slightly scared of my mum and I remember hiding behind the door trying to pretend everything was normal I was probably drunk I remember my mum going and oh, where is Susan 
was good. She called me Susan. And I just kind of like peeked out from behind the door and went, I'm behind the door with my stiffy. <laughs> and, um, anyway, I don't think my mum kind of got the, the humour in that. But yeah, mum, I did find my mum slightly irritating in the mix. But also my mum was a music teacher, which I think partly what drew her in, you know, drew them into that because I think quite a few of her pupils were in the concert band. And then my dad became chair of the Parents Association. So mm. it was... Yes, I mean, that's a, it's a really great question. I think it probably was something that connected us and kept us together. It was also in the backdrop of oh. the sad story, which I'll come to, where my sister, other sister had died. And so I'm sure it was kind of quite a nice thing for them to feel part of because they drew great community from yeah. it as well. And my parents would give us. So this is a really good sort of, I suppose, line of questioning when I think about them and how I am today. Mm. They were very community minded. They were part of the church and then they were part of this. And, you know, I definitely feel that sense of needing to give to the community and to do things for the greater good. So yeah, I suppose that yeah. that's, they were modeling it to me. I thought I made that connection because I know again, in one of our earlier conversations, you just said in passing how you'd been a governor at your children's school. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, oh, okay, you, you were seeing that that interaction mm. or that kind of contribution from your parents growing up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that, but yeah, maybe they weren't so bad after all. Maybe they showed me some really <laughs> good things. <laughs> and so as you've mentioned a few times in the kind of the midst of some of these good, joyful, happy times, unfortunately there was some, some tragedy going on for your family too. And you wanted mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about what happened with your sister. Yeah, so so the not so good part of my childhood was that um, this middle sister, she was called Judith. So an older sister called Ruth, who's about eight years older than me. And then Judith was six and a half years older than me. Mm. When I was age seven, she was diagnosed with bone cancer in her leg. She was obviously treated quite intensely. I turned 12 on the 25th of July 1989 and she died on the 10th of July so 15 days earlier um, 1989 and so from for those very sort of very formative years developmentally for me I was mm. living around illness and death and um, and what that did to kind of my 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 own experience and the experience of those around me is obviously it's informed who I am today in good ways and bad ways. Well, not mm. bad ways, but more challenging ways. Yeah. She died on my mum's birthday on the 10th of July. Um, my mum turned Gosh. 45 that day and I turned mm. 45 this year. So it's a really mm. pertinent year to be thinking about it because, of course, yeah. I was so young and, well, obviously I had no real idea about what that experience was like for my parents other than mm. the last thing any of us imagine is that we'll bury our children. You know, it's the... yeah you know, the most challenging concept to get your head around, I think. Mm -hmm. But I've never, you know, it's, it's. I'd say only really in the past five years that I've really been able to connect him with the what the experience was like for my mum and dad and move on from what the experience had been like for me, which was obviously yeah. really shit. <laughs> yeah. And how did you, in those, those kind of early years, and as you said, those really kind of, critical right formative years as you mentioned how did you and your family cope with the the grief of what had happened 
it's a really important question. And actually this year, I've decided I need to go on a grief retreat. So the grief still hasn't been dealt yeah. with properly. Well, I don't think you ever really deal with, you know, that kind of situation. It's, it's You live, learn to live alongside it, but you never kind of get over it. But at, at the time, through my child's eyes, the experience was we just got on with it. I think that was true to a certain extent. That was kind of the time as well. Yeah. And I think our, our parents and most people sort of our age would be able to relate to this. Mostly our parents were still of that slightly unevolved emotional kind of slightly Victorian yeah. way, you know, where you mm. kind of, we don't really talk about our feelings. and But of course, you know, I was so young and I needed a lot of support to understand what had happened and the impact on me, but it just didn't really get talked about. And that was partly mm. my mum. My mum was very emotionally illiterate. You know, she just didn't mm-hmm. really, my mum, she sadly passed away a couple of years ago. She didn't really have an emotional language. It was very hard to connect with her. And I, it's not just in relation, it wasn't like she just shut off emotionally because of how traumatic it was. She just didn't have that. And she hadn't had it growing up. You know, yeah. and that's what we have to remember that, you know, our parents were the product of their childhoods. Um, yes. And so she didn't have that to give to me. So I sort of, I can't really remember what the question was, but I, I kind of was left really to just kind of deal with it and move on. And I remember thinking as a teenager, one day I'll have to put myself through counselling for this because nobody's helping mm. me. I mean, that was a very mm. clear thought as a teenager. And of course, I've subsequently done that for myself. But it's mm. been a real process. But w- what it meant was I, and then, you know, then I step almost immediately into my adolescence. So thank goodness for concert bands. Yeah. I think that held me um, safely. You know, who knows how I would have coped otherwise. But then, and then, you know, my older sister had gone away to university and I was kind of left at home as this, like, obviously, I'm sure, precious child and it was yeah. just, it was like it's very intense for me mm. um yeah I think I've heard you speak as well around the work that you do now with families has been really informed by this particular part of your childhood and, and growing up when did you start to like kind of make that connection or see that as part of your calling for want of a better mm. phrase well it's interesting I mean, I think it was a bit of a slow burner. I thought about doing psychology at university, but I don't know, it felt like a little bit out there at that time for some reason, so I didn't. Then sort of slowly through my 20... I started... My first real job was with Pfizer selling drugs legally out of my BMW in the (laughs) East End of London. That is true. But I worked on the mental health team Uh and that was like a really eye-opening experience for me because there I was sitting with... GPs and psychiatrists talking about mental health. And I was like, this is where my heart is. I didn't like selling drugs, so I didn't stay there for too many years. And then I sort of slowly started to shift to the other side to start to sort of explore, um, you know, counselling and psychology. And yeah, but it took me a long time to really sort of figure out what, you know, what that meant for me and what my calling was. But I'm very clear now. And what I was saying before about, that emotional illiteracy in our family, you know, just feels so powerful because actually if we, you know, if I had had the the modelling and the language around me to enable me to talk about 
my emotions at the time, then, you know, maybe, maybe my, you know, early adult life wouldn't have been quite so tricky because I would yeah. have been able to express myself. Totally. I think you and I are both passionate about supporting children, young people, families around this emotional well-being, around emotional intelligence or literacy or however you want to describe it. And I, I only had a conversation this morning with somebody who is a, a play and entertainment therapist, um, for want of a better phrase. And we were talking about exactly this conversation and grief with, with young children and or even just anything that's difficult, right? Or slightly taboo or where our parents and even, or parents today still don't know because if our parents weren't teaching us, this stuff isn't being taught in schools. It comes back to this whole thing around parenting doesn't come with a manual. Yes, there are tons of books, but if we don't know ourselves, then we can't do better. And I think there's so much space and opportunity now in the, in the here and now in the current generation because i think parents want to they they recognize that they might be lacking in some of these skills or not have the tools but they want to access them whereas it just wasn't even a conversation or it just wasn't society wasn't there yet for parents to even consider that say when you and i were growing up exactly that and that's that's why, you know, for a long time, it was very hard to sit with. I, I couldn't understand it in that very sort of clear, slightly cerebral point of view. You know, my, yeah. the experience had been that I hadn't had the support that I needed. And let's not forget, you know, these days, you know, if a child's in school and a sibling dies, it's very likely that the teachers will be onto it and some kind of mental health support would be offered, et cetera, et cetera. But mm. at that time, you know, early 90s, uh, you know, nobody, I don't think it, the term mental health was, you know, nobody knew about it and nobody knew what that looked no. like, what the signs were to look out for or what kind of preventative measures could be yeah. helpful. And so, you know, a fine, my, I didn't feel supported um, as I needed to be um, within my family, but that, you know, wasn't their fault because they didn't have the skills or the knowledge, but also yeah. within school, you know, I it was just kind of just got on with it you know and um yeah but people didn't talk about it to my memory you know and that, that just yeah. wouldn't happen now yeah so much was lacking i mean the 80s and the 90s and we can speak to that because that's our you know when we were growing up and i've said before from my own personal experience being adopted as a mixed race toddler into a white family um, and then it was almost, that's as far as any conversation about race or my cultural ethnic identity went, because it's like, well, we don't really know. We don't know anyone who isn't white. So let's just pretend this baby, this child is white. Like, let's just kind of get on with it that way. And there were, yeah, there was so much lacking around my situation and that time for other children who were fostered or adopted because social services or the authorities weren't thinking too much back then around the emotional aspects of this. My understanding is now that if you're going to adoption, you know, counseling or therapy of some kind is weaved into that process for a matter of course, but that certainly wasn't happening when I was little. And that's one of the great things I think about where we're headed at least that it's on the agenda to some extent, nothing's perfect. And there's tons of work to be done to support children and families more in this space, but at least it does feel like it's shifted. 
it does feel like it shifted hugely. But also what's good now is I think, I mean, particularly teenagers now are so much more attuned to being able to sort of speak up, for example, for their needs. And where I'm going with this is just to say that I think that there is just a general a much greater acknowledgement in within schools and society that actually acknowledging somebody's different needs is more accepted and so yeah. you know let's say now like you say i mean your your case if it happened now would be handled very differently but you know mm. it, it's much e- it's much easier for somebody to identify oh that child or you know, might need some more support because of X, Y, or Z, or that, you know, this child is having this behavioural difficulty and it's much more widely understood that behavioural um, difficulties are are a part of something that's going on underneath for them. Whereas, you know, when we were younger, it's much more treated as like, this child's really difficult. And yeah, they're really no naughty. Yeah, there's no curi- there was no, there's, there was no curiosity. I mean, like you say, it's, we're far from in a perfect world. There's lots of work to be done. But it, those conversations are much more accessible and prevalent now than they ever were. Yeah. And I think it's helping families signposting so that people know where they can access that help because it's not exactly. always clear. Exactly that. Yeah. Lots of work to be done. But going back to your early years, so mm-hmm. we're moving on to the wild card story now. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you were off doing some adventuring in New Zealand. Yes. So obviously we've we've placed my adolescence and we've understood what's gone on. But the one, the other thing that sort of I, that I hadn't mentioned, both my parents were teachers, and they had a house in Cumbria. Um, so I grew up on the Wirral. They had a house in Cumbria, and that was the only place we ever went on holiday. Actually, not entirely true. Once or twice we went to Norfolk, but we never, I, apart from the concert band holidays, I didn't leave the UK. Yeah. Cut cut to the end of my GCSEs. My dad had just taken early retirement. He was only 53. I thought he was really old at the time, but oh, <laughs> Lord. Yeah. yeah. He took early retirement and he got a lump sum from his job as a lecturer. And previously, before I was born, he'd worked for the New Zealand Shipping Company. And so we'd grown up okay. all our lives with stories of how amazing New Zealand was and pictures and maps of New Zealand around the house. And so when he got this lump sum, I finished my GCSEs and he and I set off on a two-month adventure to New Zealand wow. and Australia. So having gone from a child who only ever spent her every every single holiday, basically, in this tiny little village in, in southwest Cumbria, to um, g- going off on a plane to New Zealand and then Australia, it was amazing. Mm. And it was just, I mean, it was a wonderful experience for so many reasons, not least that I got to have some really intense time with my dad, who, as I've mm. mentioned, I'm, you know, I, f- I feel really connected to and close to. My mum and my elder sister did then join us a month in when they were available to take time because they were both, my elder sister was a teacher by then, my mum was a teacher. So once the schools broke up, they joined us. Anyway, the point of all of this is to say we we had this massive adventure. It was super exciting. But um, I knew from another family friend who'd been doing some traveling about the possibility to do a bungee jump in Taupo. And I had just had it on my mind. I was like, I am going to do that when we get there. But I knew it was going to be a 
few weeks into the holiday. So it was on my mind the whole time, like, am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? Am I going to do it? (laughs) And uh, I was only 15 at the time. But I mean, I was quite, um, you know, I was a very capable teenager. And um, anyway, so we get to Taupo and we get to uh, the bungee jump station and they explain what's happening. And they say to my dad, you know, well, how old, how old is she? And yeah, we were like, well, she's 15. And they were like, okay, you'll have to sign a disclaimer. So there's my lovely dad, who has already lost one daughter, right. signs yeah. a disclaimer, you know. What this, would your like, mum have said if she was there? Well, I don't know, but I do know when I got my belly pierced when I was about 18, she said, <laughs> she said, oh, Susan, we all thought you were growing up. And uh, <laughs> so she would probably have been slightly more despairing and judgmental about the whole thing. Um, but my dad signed this disclaimer. There was an Irish guy there, older in his 20s, who was also sort of excited and going to do it. And he's like, should we kind of go up together onto the platform? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And um, he said, do you want to go first? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'll go first. I mean, I was like kind of obviously really brave slash stupid. I think there's a fine line between courage and stupidity. Also, but also like highly anxious. I was like, yeah, I'll go first. And then, you know, then you can come down. Anyway, so I went up and I stood on the edge of this platform for a long time with my (laughs) eyes shut. And I was not going and I was not, I was, I mean, I'm actually scared of heights. So, I mean, this really Mm. was quite mental. I was just not budging. And they're all trying to encourage me and, you know, saying all these very you know, encouraging things. And in the end, they somebody said, do you want him to go first? And I was like, yeah, you right. go first. So then I, I shuffle back, they take everything off my legs, put them on him. Anyway, he goes, and then I go back up again and I stand on the edge for a really long time. And just like <laughs> trying to talk myself into it. And in the end, I remember hearing, and I can still kind of picture what the guy looked like, um, hearing the guy behind me say, one of the kind of, people working there say look you can come back tomorrow if you want or go now and I just remember thinking oh my god I can't go through this all again tomorrow I knew I had to do it so I just went and that they videoed it we've got the video somewhere but of course you can't play videos Uh so um and I screamed the whole way down but then there's somebody in a boat at the bottom holding a long pole and the idea is you reach out grab the pole and they lower you into the boat but I wouldn't oh, open right. my eyes to find. I wouldn't open my <laughs> eyes to see where the pole was. No, so that I'm sounds like, awful. Yeah, so I'm waving my arms around in like kind of dangling at the end of this rope over a river, trying to find this pole because I wouldn't look to see where. Anyway, eventually I found it and they lowered me into the boat and it was kind of all fine. And I've obviously dined out on that story for a very long time. You know, hats <laughs> off to that 15 year old girl because I was like, yeah. I am doing this, but also. Um, yeah, also know your limits, maybe. Uh, you know. <laughs> but, but I did it yeah. and n- never again. I really, so you didn't throw yourself out of a plane or anything else like that while you were there? No, I, well, actually, I didn't throw myself out off a plane. I did do a paraglide. And so that's coming, that's off the top of a mountain, you know, and I did that after the bungee jump. And again, that was like all quite, quite stressy and panicky. Then I sort of feel like, okay, I've done it now done those things in my life I don't need to go yeah. and do any or I mean I have done some white water rafting and some sort of low level slightly crazy things but um yeah there you go I got it out of the way as a teenager <laughs> you've mentioned a few times the closeness that you have with your dad had that had it always been that way and if so did this trip just cement this even further or 
was this trip a big part in you having such a close relationship as the years have gone on? It's a great question. And actually, as I was telling you just you know a few minutes ago, I was kind of wondering that myself. I don't, I don't know what our relationship was particularly like before that. I mean, all I knew he was just this like calm, constant presence. And, mm. you know, and like I say, all my friends when I was a teenager, like just, they called him Mr. G, our surname was Giles, you know, and they just loved my dad. And I remember being like absolutely thrilled that it was just me and my dad for a while on mm. holiday. You know, I obviously really needed that time with him, just having him to myself. And I think just my dad and I are just very similar, really. And But I, I definitely, yeah, I think that I, I'm sure that holiday did something very significant for our relationship anyway, mm. although it was probably already very good previous to that. Yeah. One of the things that I look forward to, hopefully, um, or are willing is creating those kinds of memories and going on those kinds of special holidays, just the two of us. Because I never did anything like that with my dad, who's passed away, or even not really with my mom, you know, creating that. Because we had a busy family, lots of kids, lots of stuff was going on. It didn't feel like there was space to create those moments. They they call it love bombing, don't they? Mm -hmm. Um, Where you kind of create and really honor these these moments together. And I think there's something really special and powerful in being able to do that. Absolutely. And we we work quite hard actually in our family to try and create those experiences. So I said when our children were very young, when they turned 10, they would go away on a little adventure holiday with me. And then, you know, I mean, that felt like it was going to be a long time away. And then all of a sudden, mm. Henry was 10 last year. So, and because of the pandemic and things, and we had our fourth child um just at the start of the pandemic so you know mm. I didn't perhaps do quite as much as I would have liked to have done but we did go camping up in the Lake District and we went and um, we did a we rode across Derwent Water we did a canoe camp basically we rode across Derwent okay. Water we hung hammocks in trees on an island on Derwent Water slept there overnight cooked on the side of the lake and you know and then did lots of jumping off bridges into water and you know just had Mm. a nice adventure and then our currently nine-year-old daughter Rosa will turn 10 next year and I'm hoping to take her to um like the Aspinall Foundation to see some tigers because she loves tigers Mm -hmm. but yeah and then my husband is doing trips with them as well in the autumn of their first year at secondary school but the point is yes you know I think they do call it love bombing. It's all about being very child-led. You know, what does the child want to do? That's kind of, I think, where is Oliver James, I think, who wrote the book Love Bombing. But either way, mm. I think creating, trying to, you know, we are all busy as parents. We're all incredibly yeah. busy. You know, we've got so many pools, particularly in London, I think, just life feels pretty frantic. We have so many pools on our time and our energy and it can be really hard to create these spaces. And you hear people like me, you know, parent coaches, etc., say, give them 10 minutes a day special time. And I've always heard that and thought, how? And I, you know, I've got to be completely honest, we don't I, we don't do that in our house. But you know, some people do yeah. do it successfully. But we do try and create these parent and child days or little you know time away etc so that they can feel they get a chance to talk to us and just hang out without us checking our phones all the time or you know 
These things don't have to cost loads of money or it doesn't mean you have to go on holidays. I remember things that kind of sparked my imagination as a child were just breaks from the norm, like being able to do something that we wouldn't normally be able to do. Or And so even now I like sometimes having just breakfast in bed with or on a Friday because that feels a bit cheeky, you know, or a bit indulgent. And it's, it's whatever it feels different or exciting or like I said, kind of just sparks those little flickers for you and your, your kids, I think, that can make all the difference. Exactly. I, and I think those, like, that's a great example. It's just, or, or just these little kind of rituals that become about something special that they can, you know, look forward to. However, however you do that with your family and, and, you know, and it is important and you're right, absolutely right to acknowledge, you know, these things don't have to cost money. And that's really important because, you know, not all families can afford to do things, you know, um, yeah. that are any kind of big gesture, but children don't always need that anyway mm. yeah we could talk about that for ages but um anyway I was fortunate enough to have that time with my dad and yeah. you know and, and I've tried to recreate that for my nephews so when my nephew who's now 21 when he did his GCSEs my dad did take him to New Zealand as well so that's amazing oh wow yeah but then my dad's become it's become too tricky for him to do it for the next two who are now like 18 and 17 so with each of those I said I'll take over the mantle so I I, I, sadly I couldn't go to New Zealand with them but I've done sort of a a fun little trip with each of them and and, you know just try to keep up that kind of sense of special time in that way with them. Traditions are are really great I think and I love that we all have the opportunity to create new ones in whatever way we want to but I, I, I love traditions. So we're coming to the end of our time together, Susie. So my final question for you today is, what is your mantra for grown-up living? So I obviously I knew you were going to ask me this and it's quite hard to choose one. There's, you know, there's lots <laughs> um, in there, which I probably like bash my children over the head with a lot. Um, but I think the key one, and I think I, I referred to this earlier, is the way that I've managed to make peace with my childhood and Mm. the way that I am parenting is this concept of we are all just doing the best we possibly can with the skills the knowledge and the internal resources we have available at the time Mm. and you know I've so I found an understanding of my parents journey in using that concept and also I try to show myself great compassion in my role as a parent yeah. by saying, you know, I I am just doing my best. And my dad always said that academically, etc. You know, all you have to just do is just do your best. And, you know, but I don't think actually just saying just do your best goes far enough. You know, it's it's this idea of we all do our best with the skills, the knowledge and the internal wow. resources we have available to us at the time. I like that that the extension of that around the acknowledgement that we're all different and we have different capabilities and different levels of understanding. It really roots that concept in empathy as I hear you talk about it and how it can apply to all of Mm. us as much as, you know, I think a lot of us might have anger or resentment or whatever around uh, towards other people for things that have happened in our lives. But through what you've just described, it can help us remember whether it's a parent or even our child or ourselves that we can, you know, approach that and look at it from a place of empathy and hopefully some love too. Exactly. 
Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation, Susie. I really appreciate you joining me today. You too. I've loved it. And of course, I'd like to ask you all the same questions, but um, that's for another time. (laughs) (laughs) We'll do that another day. Okay. Thank you, Susie. Take care. Thanks, Rebecca. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sharing Tales, brought to you by Happy Marlow, the purpose-driven brand on a mission to help grown-ups emotionally empower the little people in their lives. To find out more, visit happymarlow.com. If you're not already subscribed to this podcast, please do so at your usual podcast platform to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please go ahead and leave a review and a rating as they really do help other people to find this show. And if you feel the urge to tell all of your friends and family about Sharing Tales, who are we to stop you? Thanks as always to our wonderful sound producer and editor, Erin Maguire at Beyongolia Productions. Be sure to tune in next Monday for a new episode. Bye-bye for now. Bye.